For a new book he was writing, author Jeff Chang traveled to a suburb of St. Louis to learn more about the post-civil rights era. So I went to, to Ferguson a year after Michael Brown had been shot for the anniversary as, uh, as, as sort of a way to begin to understand all of these things that had happened over the last two years. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Jeff Chang discusses his book, We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. Chang has written extensively on culture and politics for outlets like The Guardian, Slate, The Nation, and The New York Times. He's a hip-hop music critic and directs Stanford's Institute for Diversity in the Arts. He says his trip to Ferguson a year after the Michael Brown shooting led to a period of reflection. It became sort of a meditation for me on all of the questions that the Movement for Black Lives has raised, I think for all of us across the country, and specifically the gap between the races on everything from premature death, right, and life expectancy. He continues with a lengthy list of inequities. He says these unfair differences led him to explore more existential questions in his book about how to live better and how to live together. Later in the show, Chang talks about how the story Beyonce tells in her 2016 album Lemonade parallels a Black Lives Matter belief. He explains what transformational justice is and how it's being used in pop culture. But first, Chang on his book, We Gonna Be All Right, at the Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series. He's interviewed by Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. When you read, when you read this book, the biggest chapter is on Ferguson, the chapter called Hands Up. Yeah. And you give a detailed look at the first few days of what happened after the shooting of Michael Brown. And it made me wonder, why isn't this a book solely about Ferguson? Well, so it began as an essay um, that I was going to do, I thought, as an introduction to the paperback edition of my last book, uh, which is called Who We Be, uh, a a Cultural History of Race in Post-Civil Rights America. And and that book is sort of about uh, looking at visual culture over the last 50 years, how we see race, and how that's changed and not changed over the last half century. And so I went to, to Ferguson a year after Michael Brown had been shot for the anniversary as, uh, as, as sort of a way to begin to understand all of these things that had happened over the last two years mm-hmm. and ended up coming back with this 50-page essay. So the, the, <laughs> the short of it is that the publisher said, you can't do an introduction to a book that's going to be 50 pages. <laughs> that's, that's just like way too long. But it's a new book. And so go forth and do this in uh, three and a half months. And so um, it's the fastest book I've ever done. I took 20 years to do the first two books. And I took wow. about four months to do this. Um, but it became sort of a meditation for me on all of the questions that the Movement for Black Lives has raised, I think, for all of us across the country. And specifically, the gap between the races on everything from premature death, right, and life expectancy, and extrajudicial killings, and policing and incarceration, but also uh, wealth, income, health, all of these questions, um, and forcing us to think more existentially about not just uh, these questions of gaps and, and death, but really life, 
What does life mean? How do we live? How do we live the best? And how do we live together? Mm -hmm. Now, leading up to the chapter on Hands Up, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, once I got to that chapter, I understood the chapters that preceded it. You uh -huh. set up yeah. a lot of information so that when you do get to Ferguson, and you do get into the details of what happened that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, uh, August 2014, Mm -hmm. Yeah, August 2014, yeah, that you have context. Um, one of the chapters is Vanilla Cities and their chocolate suburbs. Another one, um, where is it, um, is diversity for, for white people. Can you really quickly mm -hmm. um, go, go through and give the key points leading up to that chapter so that for even folks who are sitting here who even have a cursory knowledge sure. of, of Ferguson have a better idea of, what's ha of what happened? So I begin by talking about the sort of cycle of crisis that we seem to be going through around questions of race during this post-civil rights era. So I start with 1965 and uh, talk about how you know, this is the peak, really, of the civil rights movement and the national consensus around racial justice, the last national consensus around racial justice and cultural equity. That, that's the last time the nation agrees that we should be putting uh, a lot of attention on this and doing a lot of work around it. And so legislation is, is pushed through Congress during those years, 64, 65, uh, and, and, and a whole bunch of judicial decisions and sort of protocols uh, follow the sort of infrastructure of laws, of, of uh, decrees uh, that are, are moving us now towards equality. Well, what happens after crisis is we usually have sort of a reaction to that, right? Um, in 65, the reaction was to pass these laws. Uh, and then there's a backlash that sets in. And in some ways, the backlash lasted for long decades. And so we, we arrive at, for what was me, I think, and my generation, um, a critical moment in 1992, 1991 and 1992. Uh, and the Los Angeles riots sort of crystallized, um, I think, uh, uh, this moment where we have to look back and say, wow, we had crisis, we had reaction, we had backlash, we had complacency, and then we were back in crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the first thing. And then you move from 1992 to 2014, to 2013 first, right, with uh, George Zimmerman and, Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. And then uh, 2014 with Michael Brown and on through now with the Movement for Black Lives. So we're in this cycle of crisis. Uh, and it seems like the language that we use, specifically the word diversity, doesn't help us to really understand what's going on anymore. And so what we've seen really is the dismantling, the reversal of a lot of the infrastructure that was created to move us towards equity and justice. Um, that's been sort of uh, kind of invisible. Visibly, you know, we see in the media uh, rainbow images of this country, mm -hmm. right? And I was part of that. I, I, I spent a lot of time in working in hip hop um, and I still kind of consider myself a member of the hip hop generation. Um, and yet there's this gap between what we see, this picture of diversity, and what's really happened, which is all of these indices showing resegregation happening. And so I wanted to kind of get at that last part, the resegregation piece in this book. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, with, with vanilla, what was it, vanilla cities, chocolate, chocolate, su suburbs, chocolate yeah. suburbs. It's a reversal of George, George Clinton, mm -hmm. chocolate city and right. vanilla suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. um, one of the things we know as a result of the Justice Department's report 
one of the two reports uh, on the on uh, on the Ferguson Police Department right. is I think it was the first time that many Americans saw in in black and white, no pun, pun intended, just how much that town was still in like 1950s, mm. where mm -hmm. African Americans, it was one standard for African Americans um, and another for everyone else, that they bore the brunt of a lot of sort of power from the government exacted over, over their lives. Uh, but it's not, just in, it's not just in Ferguson. No, no, it's, it's all across the country. Um, and so in that particular chapter, uh, Vanilla Cities and Their Chocolate Suburbs, I actually start where I live, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, where the big issue for the last two, three decades has been gentrification. And really, the reality of that has been the sort of huge decline of the black population in the Bay Area. Um, and what we've seen, uh, well, in San Francisco, I should say, right? And what we've seen is that folks have had to move further and further out, um, and that the, the gap in median household wealth is about three times. You're talking about a white household uh, income uh, being more than $100,000, and for a black uh, household in San Francisco, it's less than 30 now. Um, and folks have moved, folks have been forced to move to Oakland, Oakland is now the number five rental market behind Washington, D.C., um, which for those of us who have lived in the East Bay forever, it feels crazy. Uh, and people have been forced to move even further out to Antioch, to Oakley, to Tracy, to Sacramento. The reason I actually saw this was because um, I'm a hip-hop fan. And so in the early 2000s, you'd see these, uh, you'd hear these records from cars blasting in the street. And you're like, that's a great record. Where is it coming from? And you find out that the producer lived in Fairfield, practically near Sacramento. Um, and, and so it made me start thinking a lot more about the geography mm -hmm. of race and what's happened. And so gentrification feels like too small a word these days. Um, it centers gentry, right? It centers the wealth that's moving into the cities. Um, and it disappears people who are displaced. Um, but people have to move to somewhere. And so they move to suburbs with names like Sanford, Florida, and Ferguson, Missouri. Well, I mean, that gets to, you see me flipping through this book because I, <laughs> it, I have it completely underlined with all sorts of uh, um, information that Jeff has in it. But uh, on this question of gentrification, you asked a question that, quite honestly, I had not even considered. Mm. And that is, gentrification has no room for the question, where did the displaced go? Instead, the displaced join the disappeared. And it's true. I mean, I had not, we talk about gentrification, but then there might be some conversation about, oh, people are being pushed out. Mm -hmm. But then the next question is not pushed out where. where. Right. People still have to live, and they have to live somewhere. Um, and I think that that's, uh, in some ways, the story of what's happened in St. Louis City and St. Louis County. You know, so what we see is, is the desegregation order comes down in the late 60s. And so now there's an opening for folks who have been concentrated in these neighborhoods in the city, right, north of the Del Mar Divide, what they call the Del Mar Divide, um, to now move into the suburbs. Um, and so they move into, the, into many North County suburbs. And what we see is, uh, for a minute, integrated neighborhoods, integrated cities. Uh, but then the tipping point happens at some point, And it moves towards becoming um, a predominantly 
uh, impoverished neighborhood. And then the, the, the sort of city government, municipal government, remakes itself to be sort of a punitive um, machine that creates debtor's prisons in order to fund its own budget. And that's essentially what the, the DOJ report on the mm -hmm. Ferguson police uh, pointed out to mm -hmm. us. In terms of gentrification, is, mm -hmm. the, is there a community that actually gets it right where people are moving back into cities, but the people who have been there, who have been the lifeblood of the community, uh, aren't pushed out that there is a coexistence? Because you have a couple of examples in here of um, people's voices literally being um, shut down. So you have, I think it's like a drum circle that had been performing for years in, in, in a park yeah. in Oakland, mm -hmm. and then it stopped because of a noise complaint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just mentioned that Oakland is now the fifth uh, highest rental market in the country. It's uh, real estate folks are, are flocking to Oakland in order to, to participate in the rental boom there because of San Francisco, because of Silicon Valley. Um, what we've seen over the last year in particular has been literally um, noise complaints on the rise. And so uh, in West Oakland, um, you know, uh, folks in, in churches practice on Wednesday night or Thursday night for Sunday morning, right? Um, and suddenly new neighbors who are in, 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 these, in the areas are calling the police on the church choirs in West Oakland. Um, at Lake Merritt, where there's been an African drumming circle, um, and not like sort of a drumming circle, drumming circle, like we could talk about, but an actual drumming right, circle. Like, yeah, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Not a Santa Cruz drumming circle, but an Oakland drumming <laughs> circle. Um, and so this drumming circle has been going on for years and years and years. And, and there's a strong sort of uh, history of Afro-diasporic culture in the area. Uh, you know, the, down, down on 12th Street, there's a, a center there called the Malunga Cascular Center. Anyway, there's drumming circles. And suddenly, folks want to walk their dogs on Sunday and don't want to hear drumming. And so they call the cops on the drumming circles. And there's been this ongoing sort of thing that's been happening in Lake Merritt between these different publics that are sort of competing, if you will, for this space. Um, and this, I think, is, is a perfect example of how the cities have changed. I, I'm not a policy expert, and I'm not, a, I'm not an urbanist, per se, um, by training. I work in culture. I work in the arts. Um, I'm interested in, in urban stuff because, uh, because, frankly, of hip hop. I grew up on hip hop. Um, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Honolulu. Um, and the countryside of, of Oahu. Um, but I am very interested in, in how these things change, and I can't really point to, I can point to many more examples of where things have gone awry or where things are going awry than places where things are, are going well. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. You're listening to a conversation from the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series. Author and director of Stanford's Institute for Diversity in the Arts, Jeff Chang, is being interviewed by Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. So um, how on earth does 
a kid who grew up in Hawaii, <laughs> and you said the countryside or rural outside well, of it was, outside it was, of it was suburbs, but suburbs. yeah, but yeah, but both, but my grandparents yeah. lived on on the on the windward side, the country, what they call countryside. Yeah. So and yeah. so, how on earth do you get <laughs> into hip hop through culture? I, you know, through it's it's really through culture. Um, what I, was it about hip hop that that attracted you? That kids, drew you? That... Kids doing their thing, you know, kids with their language and their walk and their talk, and kids of color, you know, because at that time in the media, even in Hawaii, it was largely about the white suburbs. Popular culture was really largely about the white suburbs. That was the ideal life, the Brady Bunch and all these <laughs> other kinds of things, right? Um, eight is enough, all of that, right? Um, and so this was like, wow, this is something that I can relate to. And I, just like a whole bunch of other kids, heard Rapper's Delight and just wanted to learn all the lyrics to it Do you know, in our school. No, I'm not going to try to rap it. The, the, is that what you're going to ask? Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> no. Come on, just no, say you could. No, I'm not. I'm not a rapper. <laughs> I'm a DJ, actually, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been a DJ, yeah. Wait so. a minute. So I am a DJ, then I've been a DJ. Do and you I still... am a DJ. I DJ for myself. I don't DJ publicly that much Why anymore. is it that every DJ I meet says, I DJ for myself, I don't DJ? <laughs> <laughs> I really literally used to DJ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So for, in... and, and for folks who are hip-hop folks in the audience, you'll get the sort of, I'm the DJ, he's the rapper uh, reference. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Mm -hmm. yeah. DJ Jazzy Jeff. DJ Jazzy Jeff. And the Fresh Prince. And Fresh Prince, who now is better known as Will Smith. Yeah. You know, I forgot about that, but yeah. yes, that is, that is true. He has so gone mainstream. Yes, Fresh um, Prince of So Miller. in your, in, in your yeah. book, you get into a lot of this in the chapter, The In-Betweens. Yes. And you, you write about yourself in the second, second in the second person, which took me a while to get, because after all of these facts and figures and mm -hmm. very you know very blunt in your face, suddenly it's you're asking. It took me a while to realize you were asking questions of yourself, answering your own your own questions, and talking about yourself from this remove. Why why did you write like that? Why did I write like that? Well, first of all, I had to do the essay because mm -hmm. I couldn't. Uh, write a book that was about the questions that the movement for black lives has made all of us ask of ourselves and not ask that question of myself, what that means for me as somebody who is Chinese and Native Hawaiian uh, of descent. And so, um, you know, there was a point when I was in this process uh, where the editor said, I need more you in this book. Don't you hate when the editor says that? <laughs> I need more you. Like, how, like what? How much more do you want? Um, yeah, because the I is sort of implied, right, through the whole thing. But she's like, I really need more you. And I've, I've had a hard time. I've never written publicly um, in the first person. I, it's just a hard time. I just have a hard time doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I started experimenting with the second person. And I was actually inspired by Claudia Rankin's Citizen. Um, and she does something that's very interesting in, in Citizen where she writes in the second person and it forces you as a reader to either say, I identify with what, and she's writing about microaggressions, right? Um, these little moments during which um, you're made brutally aware of your particular racial position um, in the sort of social hierarchy. And uh, you have to either say to yourself, I, I identify with that, or I don't identify with that at all. And if you don't identify, then you have to find sort of a well of empathy to be able to make that leap. 
to understand the you. Um, and, and so the second person forces that. Um, and I thought that that was very interesting. I did it because I didn't want to write in first person. <laughs> and it ended up being um, a pretty good type of thing because I wanted to really interrogate myself. I wanted to get behind sort of the, um, my sort of political public types of opinions and get into the ambivalences uh, that, that are there in the Asian American Pacific Islander experience of being in between black and white mm -hmm. in the sort of American racial hierarchy. And before you get to the in-between in-betweenness of, mm -hmm. of that chapter, you start out by talking about your 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 childhood in Hawaii, mm -hmm. how it wasn't until you came to the do you call it the continent? The continent. Yes, here. There's a great uh, poem actually that was written by a local guy in Hawaii. Uh, that ended with the line, Hawaii, Hawaii is not the mainland. Like, I mean, the, America is not the mainland, Hawaii is, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I've I just really killed his, like, the beauty of his poem. But, but, uh, <laughs> but we used to call it the mainland, right? We used to call it the mainland. But like, Hawaii is the mainland for us. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so the, mainland, the content, continent, yeah. So the mainland is the continent. And you yeah. write that when you were growing up, there were no, there were no distinctions. You had all of these friends. It wasn't until you got to the continent, till you got to sta stateside. I got to California. That yeah. you, you started learning what it meant to be Asian American. To be, yes, and to specifically be a minority. Um, I come from a family that has been in the islands for four on my dad's side and probably five or six on my mom's side. Um, generations. Generations, that's right. And uh, and we've, by now, we've intermarried. So, you know, black, Puerto Rican, every Pacific Islander and Asian ethnicity, uh, you can imagine white, a lot of uh, Hapa cousins I have. So you take a picture of us and we literally look like a Benetton ad. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's sort of when, when Barack Obama was pre presenting his, you know, sort of extended family, we're like, yeah, I can totally relate to that. You know, we could totally relate to that. Um, and so that was sort of my experience. And coming to California, coming to Berkeley, and suddenly being called racist names, you know, having sort of these hate incidents happen around me and to my friends, um, I was like, what, what, what's going on? It was, it was very much of an adjustment that, that I kind of had to make. Mm -hmm. um, when, um, I just lost my, tra my train of thought on the, on the in-betweenness. But you have a... Um, a moment in this in this book, you are you had just spoken at an event, mm -hmm. and it's over. And as people do, they come up and they talk to you. And this uh, Asian American woman comes up to you, and you get into an altercation with her. Right. And it sort of crystallizes everything that you've been talking about in that chapter, but also in in this book. Please summarize that <laughs> <laughs> that, that incident. Um, should I read it? Or no? No, sure, no. read it. Oh, yeah? okay. No, 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 because I, okay. it, it's an interesting back and forth. I don't know if I would have the guts to do that um, to someone who came up to me. OK. So what happened was, this is an event about Fresh Off the Boat, which uh, you all may know is a, a TV show featuring uh, Eddie Wong and his Taiwanese-American family. And so the question comes up about cultural appropriation. And I instead kind of, you know, 
whatever, sort of judo it and jujitsu it into a sort of a... Because you didn't want to talk about it. I, well, you know, the appropriation question, I think, is a really important question. But I wanted to talk about um, Asian Americans' role in resegregating, you know, the Bay Area. Um, but I realized that I couldn't, uh, that this was, like, not the place. Like, we're talking about fresh off the boat. I could go really, like, deep into this, but I, I, it wasn't the right place to do it. And so um, I mentioned casually sort of you know, segregation and, and that kind of thing. And this woman comes up to me and I say, uh, so it says, an older Chinese American woman comes up to talk to you, practically runs up on you and says she wants to ask what you meant by resegregation. She says that her husband is an activist, does great things for the community and is a leader of the efforts to support Asian Americans in the public schools by getting rid of quotas for blacks and Latinos. You're horrified. You tell her you disagree with her husband and she stares at you. Uh, you hear yourself telling her that you don't believe he's doing anything to help Asian Americans. I want to know what is wrong, she retorts, her eyes growing wide and her voice rising, with wanting to protect our people from discrimination. It's over. You want to walk away from her at this point. You want to walk away from being Asian American. You know her story just by hearing her Sunset District accent, by seeing the stress lines on her face. You recognize this anger. All those times they were taunted, beaten, humiliated in the schoolyard or the street. All those people in authority who made them feel subhuman. All those jobs or homes they never got because of the color of their skin. All those times they played by the rules only to see a white person get ahead. You can feel a rage. Or rather, you think you can feel a rage. Maybe in this moment you're not really Asian American. And now you should shut the F up and go home, but you can't. Uh, I, yeah, I just censored that. You tell her the days are <laughs> and over. And it's censored in the book. He doesn't. <laughs> when smell Asian that. Americans should think only in terms of their self-interest, that Asian Americans ought to think about what it means to fight for justice and equity for all. You ask her quite loudly and quite rhetorically if she wants to defend a public school system in which the resources are allocated disproportionately to Asian Americans. Is that what she wants? Because if that's what she wants, that's not your idea of an equal and just society. You feel good. You know you're right. Of course you're right. Now she's shouting at you and people are staring. The crowd that has gathered looks at her with a bit of pity, not because they have any idea what the two of you have been arguing about, but because your provocations have made her emotional. That's when you finally walk away. But later when the night is over, you can't help but ask yourself, who is the real Asian American here? Jeff Chang reading from his book, We Gonna Be Alright, Notes on Race and Resegregation. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. This episode features Chang in an interview with Jonathan Capehart, a columnist for the Washington Post. Capehart continues. For me, reading that section, I, I, that, that vignette, I found myself thinking, I don't know who's, wait, who's right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who, like, should she be getting so upset? Well, why shouldn't she be getting upset? She thinks that she and her husband are doing the right things mm -hmm. for their children and for, and for their community. How, it doesn't sound, well, it doesn't, from that, you didn't bridge, you didn't bridge the divide. Mm -hmm. If you had to, if, you, if she were here, is she here? If she were here, <laughs> if she were here today, is there anything you would say to her differently than you did in that moment? A lot. I think I would do a lot. I, I think, you know, I have, I know how I feel about these kinds of questions. I'm, uh, I was staunchly against 
the lawsuit to overturn the consent decree that desegregated this particular high school, Little High School. And if I had had more time and I wasn't so full of rage that night, I think that I would have tried to say, well, why do you think um, discriminating against other minorities uh, should help Asian Americans? Um, and I think I would have had a much different kind of a conversation. Um, and I think that's the place of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders being in between in so many ways. We can choose to sit on the fence mm -hmm. on, on a lot of these questions. Um, we can choose to kind of opt out um, of these questions. But in, in many ways, um, that doesn't take us any closer to where we need to be for all of our, all of our kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the end of the day, uh, my you know, heart and my mind um, are settled very much on, my, uh, on, on the position that I, I put out publicly and politically. Um, but yeah, but I, I, I think I, I, had to, I had to approach it from the point of view of trying to understand Mm -hmm. you, I mean, I have, I've had the book open to this particular section where you said, what does it mean to be in between? It means one can afford to sit on the fence, decide not to take a stand, to always reserve the privilege while the battle rages all around to disengage. And you, you don't think that uh, Asian Americans or anyone should sit on the fence, should disengage, that people should join, join the fight, if you will, in terms of bridging the gaps in understanding. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's why I write, you know? Um, I, I feel like I don't want to see, you know, seven generations from now being in, in a situation in which color, class, and, and caste are, have, have congealed and converged in, uh, in ways that are much more um, divided than they are now. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that that looking at the last 50 years of, of history in the US, um, that that's uh, what we've seen beginning to happen. And of course, the number that looms over all of this is 2042, right? Which is the year that it's supposed to really all go to hell, I guess. Oh, is that ways. when we become a majority, <laughs> majority minority, minority right. yeah. country? Yeah, and I think that you, know, you see a lot of folks pointing to that right now um, in the rhetoric that they use, um, you know, to gain office or that kind of thing, uh, to gain power for themselves. So, mm -hmm. um, so I write. For, I, for, I write for that reason. I write. I write towards twenty forty two and beyond. I guess. So, um, all this book isn't just about. It's not just about the po the political. There's a, a huge cultural piece mm -hmm. to this book. The cover of the book um, are these two hands, which the significance of this doesn't come into play until later later in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, talk, talk about these hands. Yes, the, these are the hands of uh, an activist in Ferguson. It's from a series of posters that Damon Davis, uh, an artist in, in Ferguson, put together. Uh, Damon's an artist and an activist. Um, he saw in the lead up to the, uh, the announcement of the non-indictment that many of the folks who had been out in the streets were feeling very weary. Uh, they were feeling very down. They were very despairing. Um, and he wanted to do something that would lift up the uh, organizers uh, and to sort of bring um, a little bit of light to the city in a way. And so, as everybody will remember, Governor Jay Nixon declared a state of emergency 
uh, a week in advance of the, of the announcement of the non-indictment. And so immediately, um, you know, Plyboard, uh, Plyboards went up on all the windows on West Florissant in Ferguson, uh, the main business road. And so what Damon did with uh, the help of a bunch of folks was to take pictures of the hands of white, uh, black, uh, young, old uh, organizers and, and with, with you know, their hands up like this against a white background to make these huge posters. And they went up and down West Florissant and asked the businesses if they could post these pictures, um, post these posters on, 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 these, billboard, on, the, on these plywood boards. Um, and they did. And that gave folks a little bit of a sense of, well, we can see um, ourselves represented. But also, too, if you kind of think of it as a whole, kind of this concert of folks, you know, like, um, you know, it, whatever, hip hop, right? Throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care, right? Like, it doesn't necessarily mean surrender in this particular instance. It's a picture of the community um, as a whole that were up on these ply plywood boards. Um, so it gave, it gave folks a, a little feeling of, of, of joy, a little bit of recognition in those hard days. I, I wanted to end the story by saying I, I was um, lucky enough to be at the National Museum for African American History and Culture this past weekend um, for, the, for the donor um, uh, opening. And what I know is, is that Damon, um, after uh, the riots occurred, went back to the Ferguson Market, which is where Michael Brown um, you know, uh, took the cigarillos, right? And it's become a flashpoint. And there was one poster that was left on one piece of board. And he asked the owner uh, for it. Um, and he, he was able to get it. And he took it home. And the Smithsonian contacted him later. And so the last remaining original poster uh, is now here hmm. in the new museum. Um, as, as, and I don't know if they've exhibited it yet, um, but it's a, it's a really powerful piece of history. No, I'll go look for it on Saturday. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. There's another um, um, art, art piece of uh, artwork that you write about, and that is the coffin yes. that was covered in uh, broken mirrors. glass and, and, and mirrors. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and the reaction of the police. And that piece is also in the, in the Smithsonian as well, in the uh, NMAAHC. Um, actually, Angela Davis writes about it in the, the current issue of Smithsonian Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it was a piece where they fashioned a coffin and put uh, mirrors on it. And then they broke the mirrors. And they carried this to the front of the line uh, on one of the nights uh, near the police department. Um, and um, and it was meant, I think, to evoke um, the state that we'll all be in if we don't actually try to figure out ways to bridge this. And the police who were standing on the line saw it, and many of them were visibly shaken. Um, it was one of these moments in which there was this dialogue. Um, and, and I think that, that in so many ways, so much of this election has been about uh, the sort of monologue of fear. Right? And here was a dialogue that had been opened up by a piece of art um, that, that fears uh, can be transformed, that they can be shared and transformed into a different kind of way of under, uh, understanding things. And I think that that's what the, the coffin, who was, which was uh, 
uh, put together by DeAndrea Nichols, um, as well as a, with the, uh, and she had a group of artists in, in, in St. Louis and Ferguson help her put it together. Um, I think that that's what the coffin meant to, meant to symbolize. I think, didn't you write uh, in, in that section that as the coffin was brought, brought up and the police officers looked at, they, they, the, the mere power of being able to see themselves reflected back at them, um, and correct me if no, I'm wrong, because right. I think right. I'm wrong, right. that in some ways they saw their own, they saw their own humanity mm-hmm. and that they all just turned and, and walked away. I don't know that they am turned I, and walked am away. I remember, yeah, I there's another I'm instance not the, Yeah, I don't know that well. they turned and walked away. Um, but there is another instance in, in which that, that happens. And what I, what I think I found so moving and powerful about what was happening in Ferguson was that there was an underlying spirituality to it. And the idea was if the police and the state are going to continue to escalate the situation, that what we've got to try to do is to figure out ways to de-escalate and to take care of ourselves and to bring us back and to draw us back into understanding of ourselves as a community that's got to work these questions out. Um, and I think that that continues to be the language and the, the, the sort of consensus of the movement for black lives, um, is that we've got to de-escalate from the militarization. We've got to de-escalate from the prison industrial complex. We've got to de-escalate from um, these kinds of things that are separating us uh, and to try to find ways to center the most vulnerable communities um, in the discussions of what needs to happen moving forward next. What I, uh, among the many things I loved about this book was that this wasn't just sort of writing about the politics of, of what happened uh, what happened in Ferguson, but what's happening in the country, but it also talks about the role that the arts yeah. and artists uh, play in this, in this moment. But I have to ask you, because the way it's written here and the way you've said it several times here, in... in out there in the rest of the world, we call it the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm, mm-hmm. But you consistently call it the movement for black lives. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that's conscious. Why, why, why do you do that consciously? The movement for black lives, I think, is, is, is uh, an infrastructure mm. of folks throughout the country who have been coming together talking about these issues. And the movement for black lives are the folks who issued um, an agenda uh, and a platform that, that uh, that they are offering for change. Um, and so I, I say the movement for Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, I kind of use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to highlight and give, uh, and lift up and, and sort of give props to the movement for Black Lives um, because they are, they have been working very diligently and democratically to be able to put together ideas that we can then bring into the public sphere, into the public policy space. You're listening to a conversation between writer and hip-hop music critic Jeff Chang and columnist Jonathan Capehart. Their discussion was held in mid-September in Washington, D.C. Here's Capehart. Okay, I want to pick a bone with you. We okay, talked about please, it, we talked about it earlier, but we have, we, have yeah, to, totally do it. we have to put it out there. Yeah. So, um, and, it's not, and it's not the hands up, it's respectability politics. Mm. So whenever I've written about Ferguson, Black Lives Matter movement, um, anything related to President o- Obama and what he has or hasn't done for the African American community, someone, more than someone, a whole lot of people will come back at me 
on Twitter talking about you're just you know, um, operating in, with that brand of respectability politics. Mm. Define respectability politics and what's wrong with that? The way that I understand respectability politics is that it's sort of a, a way of, of thinking about politics that privileges uh, a certain range of voices to the exclusion of many others. And so when Alicia Garza, uh, you know, one of the architects of the Black Lives Matter hashtag first, and now the movement for Black Lives began writing about this, the way that she described it was that the movement needs to be rethought and rebuilt in a way that allows for all of these marginalized, voice, marginalized voices within the black community to be able to be raised up. So and when you say the movement, you're talking about the, over the broadly defined civil rights, mm -hmm. civil rights yeah, movement. Yeah, yeah, um, So uh, black queer voices, black women's voices, black trans voices, um, black immigrant voices, black undocumented voices, um, black incarcerated voices. Uh, you know, these are the voices who have not been part of the conversation. Um, and respectability politics has become sort of a catchphrase for being able to talk about the way that power has been concentrated uh, in the civil rights movement in the past. And so, you know, I'm not necessarily certain how folks are using it in response to you at all. And, like I don't, and I don't, I don't really want to get into all that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I'm not gonna, I can't speak for anybody but myself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what the movement for Black Lives has done is to be able to say, um, let us center, you know, let us bring forward these voices that have been marginalized. And one last question. I will admit, I have not seen Lemonade. You haven't? I haven't seen, I have not seen Lemonade Jonathan. yet. Okay, everyone, so you got to take every, the afternoon everyone, off and do this. Everyone was talking about it. It's going like, to take a whole afternoon. It only well, takes an hour, but you're going to want to watch it over and over again. And I was going so to, do when I got to that, I was like, you know, damn, I should probably <laughs> watch Lemonade before this, before this event. And then you kept talking about songs and things like, this is going to be a lot of time. I don't have the time. So why is, why is Lemonade such, for you, it was a, like a seminal moment both in the culture, but also in our politics. Yeah, I, so, so just to let everybody know, so the last essay is called Making Lemonade. And uh, the, you know, it came out just as I was wrapping the book up. From, by, by Beyonce. By Beyonce, by Beyonce. Um, and it's a, it was a, it's a visual album and it's an album album. Um, and the thing that was really exciting to me about that particular record and, and what happens I think in the popular culture every once in a while is something like some work of art kind of comes out that encapsulates the entire moment. And luckily and weirdly enough for me in writing this book, Lemonade came out. And I, I, I cherish it so much because it speaks to the question of what kind of justice we need at this particular point. Um, what kind of revolution we need at this particular point. So the first thing to say is that I think that cultural change always precedes political change. That you have to have the imagination for change before you can even begin to talk about policy. Uh, it, 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 and that work takes sometimes a long time, sometimes it, it, it sort of crests all of a sudden out of a moment. It reaches, reaches an inflection point out of seemingly nowhere. But the culture has to move before we can even get to the politics of it, the policy of it. Um, and Lemonade happened at a moment in dialogue with the, the Black Lives Matter movement um, as 
a way to be able to advance some of these ideas. It's about a, a love affair, right, in which her lover has cheated on her, right? And so much of the record is about, like, the fire and the anger and the rage and then the, the despair, the depression, um, the sort of self, you know, infliction of wounds that kind of happens out of this, um, but eventually reaching a note of grace at the end. Um, and and it, it parallels this notion that's in the Movement for Black Lives platform, which is transformational justice, which is not only do we have to figure out how to get justice for those who have been harmed, right? But how do you transform those who have done the harming as well, right? And, not, and to center and focus on those who have been harmed, right? That's where most of the work has to happen. But it's not about a bloody revolution. This is not a, a revolution in which one group uh, displaces another group that's in power, right? There's, there's got to be a way to bring those uh, who have done the harming out of the center uh, but allow for their redemption as well, which is a crazy and a powerful, uh, it's a very spiritual and religious concept, right, as well. Um, and it seemed to all be there in Lemonade. Uh, so, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons to hail the queen. Uh, I think that's, that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and when you mentioned the word grace, um, it yeah. reminded me of the quote that you have from Carrie Mae Weems, mm -hmm. um, the, the artist and MacArthur Foundation genius, yes. um, that you go on and write, finding grace is an individual process that changes the social. It is about seeing each other in the world and seeing one's own place in the world anew. In that way, grace can counter the lies, refusals, and aggressions that drive us towards segregation. Mm -hmm. We didn't even get to talk about the whole concept that you write about resegregation, but um, among many things, this is one of the things that, that I underline because I thought it was a great um, sort of definition of, of what the word grace means. Uh, Jeff Chang, you've been terrific. I want to throw Thank this you so much. Jeff Chang is an author and hip-hop music critic. He also directs Stanford's Institute for Diversity in the Arts. His new book is We Gonna Be Alright, Notes on Race and Resegregation. He was interviewed by Jonathan Capehart, a columnist for the Washington Post and contributor for MSNBC. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please take a minute to rate us. It helps other people find our podcast. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>